everyone. Welcome to episode nine of Reading During Recess. I'm Sarah, and I'm a writer. And I'm Terry, and I'm a first grade teacher. And today we are going to be talking about The Giver by Lois Lowry. So The Giver is a 1993 young adult dystopian novel by Lois Lowry. It's a really famous book. I'm sure you've heard of it before. Would you say it's kind of like the blueprint for kids dystopias these days? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It's on many upper elementary and middle school reading lists, and it's been frequently challenged and ranked number 11 on the American Library Association list of the most challenged books of the 90s. But it also won the 1994 Newbery Medal and has sold more than 12 million copies. We want to start off today's episode with a bit of a plot summary. So the novel is centered around Jonas, who is a 12-year-old boy living with his mother, father, and sister in an isolated, self-contained community. And on a surface level, his world appears to be a utopia because there is no pain, fear, hunger, death, or wealth disparity, etc., in large part because there is no personal choice. Marriages are determined by counsel. All families have one male and one female child, and every person is assigned a role in the community by a committee of elders. So for instance, Jonas's mother works in the Department of Justice, and his father is, uh, his job description is called Nurturer. He cares for the new genetically engineered babies in the community before they are given to families. So the family units in the community, none of them have biological children. The procreation is all handled by the state. Yeah. And Jonas is 12 now, so he's starting to prepare for what's called the Ceremony of 12, which is where he's going to be assigned his own role in the community. And then, bum ba da da at the ceremony, Jonas is actually passed over when they are giving out jobs. And he's incredibly scared and confused. And then uh, Chief Elder explains that Jonas is not going to have a regular assignment and that instead he is set to be the next receiver of memory. So he's going to train with and eventually replace the current receiver of memory. So he gets his rules for his new posting and how to prepare for it. And he finds that he is allowed to lie and to be impolite, all of which are things that that are otherwise forbidden in the community. Yes. So upon beginning his training, he learns that the receiver of memory holds memories of all of history, including the time before sameness. And sameness is how the current world in this community is referred to, where difference has been systematically removed. And so the current receiver, who refers to himself as the giver, transfers these memories, all the memories of the world, before sameness to Jonas through touch. He first gives Jonas the memory of riding a sled. And this really shocks Jonas because he has no concepts of sleds or snow or even hills because hills and topography have been eliminated. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you sort of realize as the book goes on, through the memories he gets that confuse him, how lifeless this world is. And And it's pretty soon after this that the giver shows Jonas a rainbow, and we learn that the community has no perception of color. That's one of my favorite parts of the book, actually, because Jonas, before he gets picked to be the receiver, and then like while he's being trained, he gets these flashes of what he calls seeing beyond where he starts to see things that don't seem like they're really there, don't think, seem like they should be there, and we realize that what he's actually seeing is flickers of color coming through. Mm-hmm. And you have to be kind of special in order to perceive color. The giver can perceive color, Jonas can perceive color, and something that both of these people have in common is that they have very light, pale blue eyes. So I think we're kind of meant to understand that that's a prerequisite for mm-hmm. seeing color. So meanwhile, Jonas's father has brought home a new baby who will be named Gabriel once he's given to a family unit, but who right now needs some extra attention to thrive and avoid being released. And being released is what they call um, being taken elsewhere, so removed from the community. It's a very common occurrence in life. It's what happens to the elderly, children who are failing to thrive, uh, habitual rule breakers, etc. Yes. And so the family quickly becomes attached. And this is kind of unusual because Gabriel has not been assigned to them. So it's unusual for a family to have three children. But they quickly become attached. And Jonas secretly realizes that he can transmit memories to Gabriel as the giver does to him. 
And I think one of the reasons why he's able to do this is because Gabriel also has those light, pale eyes. In his training, the giver starts to show Jonas less pleasant memories, ones that he's been holding back because he did tell him at the start that what Jonas would experience would be very painful. So he shows him physical pain through a broken arm, hunger, war, grief, etc. And Jonas learns that the giver's previous apprentice, a girl named Rosemary, had been so devastated by these memories uh, that she had applied for release. Jonas speculates on the nature of release, and in order to explain to Jonas what release is, the giver shows Jonas footage of Jonas's father at work. Because no one really knows what release means, they just know that it's what comes next when you're old or when you can't belong in the community. And so babies are released if they are have like a failure to thrive, like they don't sleep through the night or put on enough weight or whatever. And in this case, a baby has to be released because it's a twin. What happens when there's twins in this community is that um, they don't keep both of the twins in the community because it would be confusing, which is like a pretty bad reason, I feel like. (laughs) I'm confused most of the time as it is. Twins don't make my life that much harder. If anything, I feel like they enhance our lives with their (laughs) opportunity for hijinks, but... Their freakish nature. Yeah. Twins don't at me. I don't want to hear it. So one of the twins has to be released. And in order to figure out which twin has to be released, they weigh them. And whichever twin weighs more stays, which is a bad system, I think. So Jonas wants to learn what release is. And so the giver shows Jonas a video of his father releasing the smaller infant And it's very disturbing because what the father does is he lethally injects the infant with a poison that kills him. Very distressing. Yeah. And Jonas is obviously horrified. Uh, You know, he feels that his father is a murderer. And the giver kind of reminds him that this is all his father knows. And that this community has no real emotion. Uh, They haven't struggled. They don't really have a sense of right or wrong when it comes to this. This is all they understand. So it's at this point that the two realize that they need to come up with a plan to end the sameness and decide that the only way to show the community that it's sort of lost its way is by returning the memories to the people. And this can only happen once Jonas leaves the community, at which point the memories that he has been given will supposedly flood into the people left behind. And something like this has happened before when Rosemary, the previous apprentice to the giver, who we later learn is his, his daughter, actually. When Rosemary was released, it caused a lot of difficulties in the community for a short while because her memories, and she had far fewer than Jonas, flooded the community and people just received them and obviously were ill-equipped to handle it. So they decide that after Jonas leaves, the giver will stay and will help guide the community through this huge change. Yes. So we're kind of meant to understand that the memories have to have a human host. And if the host exits the community, then the memories will return to other people in that community. I will say it's interesting that they make that assumption. It makes sense, like, oh, they'd have to have a human host when, when Rosemary dies, you know? Mm-hmm. But it makes me wonder where, what, how does the giver know that leaving will be enough? I had that same question. Yeah, and, and it seem like there's any hard and fast boundaries. That anyway. Yeah, I had that same question also because when Jonas escapes and like he starts losing the memories, you know, like they're they fade in him. But then my question was like, does he lose all of the mem? Like, does he remember why he left? Yeah, right. Like, does he just lose the memories that the giver gave him? Yeah, but yeah, like so if he loses the memories of these things that make the world rich, mm-hmm. does he lose interest in being on the lamb? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There were some things for me that I that I sort of interpret as plot holes, but um, could just be me being stupid. Who's to say? Yeah. I think both might be true. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> uh 
Um, All right, it's my turn. I'm grabbing hold of this plot summary and getting us back on track. Good. So the initial plan had been to make it look as though Jonas has drowned in the nearby river because the hope is that then they won't issue any kind of outside-the-border search party for him. But that plan falls apart because that night Jonas learns that Gabriel, who is still not sleeping through the night, is slated to be released the next morning. And obviously at this point, Jonas sees him as a brother and can't leave him behind. So he takes him along on his escape. So Jonas leaves with some supplies, his father's bicycle, and Gabriel. And as they get further and further outside the boundaries of the community, they start to see previously unseen weather and wildlife, which suggests that there really is still an existing world outside. Yes. Um, However, the two quickly run out of supplies, and towards the end, both Gabriel and Jonas are nearly dead from hunger and hypothermia. And summoning the last of his strength, through memory and his ability to see beyond, Jonas comes to what he believes to be the borders of elsewhere, and he finds a sled waiting at the top of the hill, which has happened to him many times in the memories that the giver has transferred to him. And so Jonas picks up the sled, and he and Gabriel ride down the sled towards what appears to be a house decorated with Christmas lights and the sound of music playing. And um, this is notable because this final scene where he's approaching this house is a, is also a scene that was given to Jonas by the giver to represent love and happiness and family. That makes the ending a little bit ambiguous. These are experiences that Jonas has seen and might just be recreating as he dies. He's clearly losing it a little bit towards the end and... As you read it, you're not fully sure if he and Gabriel have perished or if they have actually made it to this mythical elsewhere. But there have been later books written that take place in this universe, and they, as well as comments from Lowry, confirm that Jonas is still alive and did survive the last events of The Giver. (laughs) Can you imagine having having Christmas with your family and suddenly this kid like shows up on a sled with an infant and you're like, wait, what's going on out there? (laughs) (laughs) And like, I don't know, the Midwest or something. It's like, and none of us can see color. And, you know, and they kill you if you're a twin. (laughs) And you're like, this Christmas sucks. (laughs) Who is this kid? So we'll talk more about the ending because it's very interesting. But before we get into that, we want to give a little background information about the author. So I'm sure you all have heard of Lois Lowry. She is one of the most famous writers for children and young adults in America. She was born in 1937 in Honolulu, Hawaii, and her family moved around a lot because her dad was in the military. And so she lived in New York, Pennsylvania, Japan, and back to the U.S. for high school. And she attended Pembroke College, which is the former women's branch of Brown University, and left after two years to be married. No shade to Lois, but imagine leaving Brown for a man. (laughs) Please. Couldn't be me. Because I wasn't accepted to Brown. Yes, and also no one wants to marry me. Just to be clear, neither of us have pursued Brown or marriage, and we could have both of those things if we wanted them. (laughs) So jot that down. But yes, she eventually completed her degree in English literature in 1972 and then went on to graduate school. And she published her first book, which was called A Summer to Die in 1977 at age 40. And this was sort of a fictionalized retelling of the loss of her sister. She then went on to publish Autumn Street, the Anastasia Krupnik series, which is one of my favorites, and we'll talk about that another time, Mm -hmm. and Number the Stars. And Number the Stars won a Newbery Medal, as did The Giver, in 1993. And she also published three companion novels that take place in the same universe as The Giver. Lowry has published over 40 books, and uh, I think it's 47. And among those are multiple children's book series and a memoir. So Lowry's works have covered complex topics like racism, terminal illness, the Holocaust, etc. 
and many have been challenged by schools and libraries in the U.S., and they've also won numerous awards, including two Newbery Medals, like we said, and the Regina Medal and the Margaret Edwards Award from the American Library Association and the Boston Globe Hornbook Award and more. And she has honorary degrees from six universities and is a three-time nominee and two-time finalist for the Biennial International Hans Christian Andersen Award, the highest recognition available to children's book authors. So she is not playing around. Sure isn't. This woman is decorated. Lowry has commented some on where she got the ideas for this book from. She talked about it some in her Newbery Medal Award acceptance speech. One of the ideas that she talked about in that speech that I found was really interesting was when she was living in Japan as a kid when her parents or her dad was in the military and they lived in like this American enclave in Japan there was all military families and very Americanized with you know American street names and American style houses and stuff but then when she left that American style enclave she was in an the rest of Japan, which was exciting and beautiful and loud and very colorful compared to the very drab enclave where she lived. And so that kind of gave her the idea of having a place that is safe on the surface, at least, but very boring and very separate Mm. from all of the things that make life worth living, the food and the culture and the people and the human connection. And so... So that's one place where she got this idea from, that barrier between worlds. And she says that she also came up with the idea of a scary, sterile world where nearly everyone takes drugs to suppress their memories and emotions after her father was put in a nursing home. So she says that he began to lose pieces of his memory the way people do as they age. And one day she showed her father a picture of her sister who had died at age 28. And he said, I can't remember her name. And Lowry told him her name, and he said, whatever happened to her? And then she had to tell him about her death. So that gave Lowry the beginnings of thinking about what would it be like to be someone whose job it is to hold memories for someone else. And she also thought about, would our existence be better if we didn't have these memories? Because obviously some of them are very, very painful. So the book was, it kind of received mixed reviews upon its release. There was some reviews that were very raving and some reviews that took issue with the book, either finding plot holes in its logic. Again, at this time, Dystopia NYA was kind of new. Um, I guess we had had Lord of the Flies, but besides that, there hadn't been very much Dystopia NYA. And so I think the book caught a lot of people off guard and also talks about some themes like sexuality and violence. You know, there's infanticide, which is very disturbing and some people thought wasn't appropriate for children. But I did come across one review by Natalie Babbitt, Queen Natalie Babbitt, who we love. We talked about her in our third episode. She wrote Tuck Everlasting and she wrote a review of the book when it came out in the Washington Post and Natalie Babbitt really liked the book. And so I wanted to share a quote that was her her thoughts on the novel. Natalie Babbitt said, Once in a great while, you come across a story that is as remarkable and as fragile as a soap bubble, the big, beautiful kind of soap bubble you blow with a pipe. If you try to investigate a soap bubble, it bursts and leaves only a small wet spot behind, and you wish you'd left it alone and just looked at it. This new novel from Lois Lowry, author of Barry award-winning Number the Stars, is exactly like that. She's created an allegory that is pretty much unforgettable, the intention of which is to alert readers to the fact that since truth about human life can be painful, and since human beings will go to any length to avoid pain, it is theoretically possible that we might create a pain-free society by utterly suppressing truth, all in the name of order, protection, simplicity, and a vapid but general happiness. The story has been told before in a variety of forms. Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 comes to mind, but not to my knowledge for children. It's well worth telling, especially by a writer of Lowry's great skill. If it is exceedingly fragile, if, in other words, some situations don't survive that well-known suspension of disbelief, well, so be it. The giver has things to say that can't be said too often, and I hope there will be many, many young people who will be willing to listen. So I thought that was a very positive way to frame the book. I agree with Natalie Babbitt that there are some parts of the book that challenge your suspension of disbelief. We've mentioned a couple of them, but... 
-hmm. certainly i have questions but they're a don't the soap bubble <laughs> but i do Leave give it alone i do like the soap bubble metaphor and i think it is apt because this book is for kids and so it can't be insanely long or it could be but kids probably wouldn't want to read that and you have to be willing to suspend disbelief yeah <laughs> go along for the ride yeah, so Karen Ray wrote in the New York Times when the book was published that there were some occasional logical lapses in the book, which we've mentioned. But she adds that the book is short to keep older children reading. And young adult fiction author Deborah Doyle was a bit more critical, saying that, quote, personal taste aside, the giver fails the science fiction plausibility test. And that things are the way they are in the novel because the author is making a point. Things work out in the way they do because the author's point requires it. What do you think of that, Terry? I think that's fair. But, I mean, in fairness, in I feel like in all books, things are the way they are because an author is making a point. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, she wrote the book, so <laughs> what are you going to do? I would agree with that. I think that one of the challenges of writing science fiction and dystopias and fantasy too is that you have to do so much world building without making it seem contrived. Um, without boring the hell out of people. Right. Sometimes when you're reading a piece of fiction like this, you can see the author showing their work for lack of a better term. Like, you're like, oh, yeah, hmm. she put that sentence there because she had to, because we have to know that mm -hmm. in this world, everyone gets assigned a job at a certain age. Like, the book was heavy on telling, more so than would be my taste, but I think part of that is because the story itself and the plot is so ambitious. You know, I'll like I said, this was sort of the the first of its kind for mm -hmm. like a, a widely popular for kids dystopian YA. I mean, that was sort of a, probably a pretty new concept in kids books, you know, by the time you got the Hunger Games and the Virgin. Divergent, yeah. Yeah. You know, by the time you get to those, we've, we've had some experience reading them, but you sort of have to be exposition heavy, I suppose, when you are almost starting from scratch. Right. And to be fair, like, I, that's a critique that I also have of The Hunger Games and other dystopian yeah. YA. Like, you have to do so much informing of your reader for them to understand the world that they're inhabiting. And it's really hard for all of that informing to come about in a way that feels completely organic. You know, I will say, though, and I did not resent the book necessarily for its telling, not showing mm -hmm. uh, in the first chunk. Because, like, like we said, you know, I do think there needs to be a lot of grace. But the place where it really bugged me that it was all telling and not showing was towards the end. Things pick up very fast after the giver's plan is revealed. It's just sort of a mad dash to the finish. Because I <laughs> I feel like we could have taken our time a little bit more because this would be our first chance to see the world as a, a boy who has never seen trees before would experience it. We get a little taste. He sees rain and experiences it for the first time, but it's all very rushed over. And these would feel like some of the truest, I think, opportunities for imagery and a really special, never-before <laughs> experience. But instead, she sort of tells us where he's going and how he's feeling, and, and then he's on a sled, and then it's over. And it did bum me out a little bit, because I did enjoy reading this book, and it made me sad that I felt more time wasn't given to Great Escape. Yeah, I completely agree. I found myself wondering like how the last quarter of the book would read if someone like Natalie Babbitt had written it with the attention that she takes to setting and took everlasting. Because you do as a reader have so many questions about what is the world outside of this community? Exactly. How did they stop there from being rain inside it? Were they in some sort of, you know, bubble? That's, I don't know. I, I'm not, and like you said, this book... Sh it's fine that it is short, but I do think it's it's not that it needed more action in the end. It just needed, it needed to take a breather, honestly. It felt like her editor had come in and be like, all right, you got to wrap this thing up. Yeah. <laughs> it's go time. Go, go. <laughs> um, but I will say that I did really like the end 
and by the end, I mean like the last several paragraphs, it did this really interesting thing, like Terry mentioned, where it kind of blurs reality and imagination. You're not totally sure even if Jonas is alive at the end of the book or if he's dying from hypothermia, which is a really interesting choice. Also, speaking of her being a finalist for the Hans Christian Andersen Award, it made me think so much of The Little Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen. Most depressing story of all time. (laughs) It really is. If you guys are not familiar with it, you can Google it and read it. It's quite short. It's a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen that was originally published or written, I think, in 1848. And basically the gist of it is that there's this poor young girl out on the street on New Year's Eve, shivering and barefoot, trying to sell individual matches to passersby on the street. And she's afraid to go home because her father will beat her for failing to sell any matches. And so she huddles in the alley between two houses and lights the matches one by one to warm herself. And in the flame of the matches, she has kind of a series of hallucinations, which I think we're meant to understand are induced by hypothermia. So she sees a warm stove, a holiday feast, a happy family, and a Christmas tree, and each vision disappears as the match burns out. And then in the sky, she sees a shooting star, which her late grandmother has told her means that someone is on their way to heaven. And so then in the flame of the next match, the little match girl sees her grandmother who was the only person to have treated her with love and kindness and to keep the vision of her grandmother alive for as long as possible. The little girl lights the entire bundle of matches. And then when the matches are gone, the girl dies from hypothermia and her grandmother carries her soul to heaven. And the next morning, passersby, who I guess didn't bother to help the night before. I don't know. Did no one see this barefoot girl shivering to death? Okay. Y'all suck. Where's your holiday spirit? The next morning, passersby find her and they express pity, which again would have been more useful the night before. But (laughs) um, what they don't know is that she had a great time with all these wonderful visions of her grandmother and that she's very happy with her grandmother in heaven, which is an important message for all of you to remember that you can... Always have a good time by lighting a whole bunch of matches and hallucinating. Yeah. So, yeah, I loved that story when I was a kid. That is sick. Uh, Yes. So, Kate, my sister, and I, we really liked it because, I don't know, I think sometimes kids enjoy things that are, like, perversely sad. I cannot wait for us to read The Clown of God. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. Uh, And similar to The Clown of God, no one ever wanted to read The Little Match Girl to me. No, of course not, Sarah. (laughs) You know who would have read it to you? My dad. My dad used to call me the little match girl. What? Mostly when I would like whine and be fussy. What are you going to do? But if you'd asked him, I'm sure he would have read you the incredibly depressing story. Yeah. So anyway, this little match girl story is so heavily alluded to in the final paragraphs of The Giver that there's no way it's an accident. So, but instead of lighting matches, Jonas is trying to gather all the warm memories that he can muster so of sunshine or of fire or of anything like that to try to keep him alive and he's keeping some of them for himself and giving some of them to Gabriel but Jonas is losing these memories rapidly because he's getting further and further away from his community Um, and so the memories are being returned to the community members and he's because he's not holding on to them in the same way anymore I'll just read a few of the final sentences of the book so Lowry says Jonas pressed his hands into Gabriel's back and tried to remember sunshine. For a moment, it seemed that nothing came to him, that his power was completely gone. Then it flickered suddenly, and he felt tiny tongues of heat begin to creep across and into his frozen feet and legs. He felt his face began to glow and the tense, cold skin of his arms and hands relax. For a fleeting second, he felt that he wanted to keep it for himself, to let himself bathe in the sunlight, unburdened by anything or anyone else. But the moment passed, and then he passes the memory on to Gabriel. It says the memory was agonizingly brief. He had trudged no more than a few yards through the night when it was gone, and they were cold again. So like the strike of the match and letting the match burn down, it doesn't last very long. But he does that a few more times with different memories. And then he has some memories of some people from the community, like his friends, 
and the giver and his parents and his sister, and that fills him with some joy and some warmth. And then uses his final strength and a special knowledge that was deep inside him, Jonas found the sled that was waiting for them at the top of the hill. Numbly, his hands fumbled for the rope. He settled himself on the sled and hugged Gabe close. And so they slide down the hill, and it says Jonas felt himself losing consciousness and with his whole being willed himself to stay upright atop the sled, clutching Gabriel, keeping him safe. He forced his eyes open as they went downward, downward sliding, and all at once he could see lights and he recognized them now. He knew they were shining through the windows of rooms and that they were the red, blue, and yellow lights that twinkled from trees in places where families created and kept memories where they celebrated love. Downward, downward, faster and faster. Suddenly he was aware with certainty and joy that below, ahead, they were waiting for him, that they were waiting too for the baby. For the first time, he heard something that he knew to be music. He heard people singing. Behind him, across vast distances of time and space, from the place he had left, he thought he heard music too, but perhaps it was only an echo. And that's how the book ends. Hmm. Which, I really love that ending. I think it's very sad and very beautiful, and I really enjoy the ambiguity of it. I, I like how you could make, I think, a pretty convincing argument that he's dead, but also a pretty convincing argument that he's alive. I mean, the allusion to the little match girl to me is just so obvious that it almost borders on, like, too heavy-handed, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, come up with your own idea, but... <laughs> I mean, even the, the final image is of a family at Christmas, which is, like, yeah. what the little match girl is hallucinating. Um, also, let it be said that we now know that Lowry is a colored lights believer. Hmm. This is an ongoing debate I have with everyone in my life about which kind of Christmas tree lights are best. Colorful lights are best. Disagree. And confirmed. Disgusting. Where is your Christmas spirit? I like colored lights on houses, but on the tree, I like the ornaments to do the talking. Anyway. But yeah, I love that. I read that last paragraph well, it's really two sentences so many times. It says, behind him, across vast distances of time and space, from the place he had left, he thought he heard music too, but perhaps it was only an echo. Like, that to me doesn't sound very promising. Yeah, it does sound like he's sort of losing it. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I mean, we do we do know that Jonas is alive. Yes. Lowry herself has confirmed it. And I am unashamedly always searching for happy endings. Yeah, I I'm... hate being sad. I'll live in the giver society any day. <laughs> no, they would abs. I would be released in a heartbeat. They would hate me. Did you know you're not allowed to be rude there? <laughs> yeah, you'd really struggle. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the ambiguity of the ending. It absolutely could have just leaned into being a very sad ending. And it didn't. And I do appreciate that. And so Lowry has said on the ending, I will say that I find it an optimistic ending. How could it not be an optimistic ending, a happy ending, when that house is there with its lights on and music is playing? So I'm always kind of surprised and disappointed when some people tell me that they think the boy and the baby just died. I don't think they die. What form their new life takes is something I like people to figure out for themselves. And each person will give it a different ending. I think they're out there somewhere, and I think that their life has changed and their life is happy. And I would like to think that that's true for the people they left behind as well. Which is great. Thank you, Lowry. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, you could also argue that even just dying with this vision, you know, is as in the little match girl, in some way, shape, or form, akin to a happy ending. On the ending, Susan Louise Stewart wrote an article about the giver that was published in the journal the lion and the unicorn in 2007 and she delineated possibilities for how you could interpret the ending one being the happy ending which is that jonas at the end of his long and dangerous journey finds a home two could be that jonas dies but elsewhere exists as a kind of metaphysical space the ultimate utopia heaven that's the little match girl reading Three would just be that Jonas freezes to death, R.I.P. And four, <laughs> four would be that Jonas's journey has been a circular one and he has now returned to the community, which has been transformed into a more accommodating one by his release of memories, which is one that I had not considered until I read this article. I hadn't either. 
Damn, wouldn't that be a trip? Yeah. How would they already have had time to build Christmas lights, though? You know? Yeah. They would have had to be really on it. That last ending to me seems the most unlikely, but... Yeah. But also kind of the happiest. How would that be? Yeah, Yeah. right? Because that was something that was sad for me is, you know, we never get the sense of... Jonas obviously feels some animosity towards his father after he realizes that, you know, his father's has been releasing these children, i.e. killing them via lethal injection. But like the giver tells him, you know, his, his parents don't have any concept of this as being wrong. You know, there is no death in this community. There is no pain. There is no suffering. So, you know, this is just what they do. This is, it's culture in a sense. So we're ne- I feel like we're never really meant to see Jonas's family as any kind of like villains or even anyone in the community really. So him leaving them behind is painful and sad. Yeah. They are his parents. They do. <laughs> he does. I was going to say they do love him. But actually, there is a part in the book where he's like, do you love me? And they're like, what a stupid question. <laughs> they were like, we're proud of you. We like hanging out with you. Ow. <laughs> the people in the community, they're very, they very much prioritize specificity and accurateness. And so they don't like words like love because they're too ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they're like, yeah, we like things about you. <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> Which is not what you want to hear when you're 11 years old and just find out that your dad murders infants, but... Nah. What are you going to do? <laughs> there was also a conversation that I found online published on The Atlantic, and it's a conversation with two writers named Jen Dahl and Kate Milford, and the article is called Reading the Giver as an Adult. And Jen Dahl really liked the book and loved the ending and she had this to say about it which i thought was pretty insightful she says it makes me wonder if the ambiguous ending of the book is a purposeful parallel of the message of the book itself the ability to choose versus having things told to you dictated or prescribed choosing is harder but in a free society we have to be able to do it for ourselves and of course we value that the ending itself becomes about this idea of choosing versus having your choice taken away, which is obviously a big part of the theme of the book. I love that. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. I, I love Lowry's response, which was just like, no, this is what happened. Yeah, I know. And it kind of makes me wonder if, like, after hearing that, that other people said that, she'd be like, what? No. It's out of her hands but, now. Wow, what a great reading. Yeah. I love that. Jen Dahl, you're awesome. Come be on the podcast. Yes, please. All right. Is it time for my favorite? So now I want us to move into our next segment, which is, and now a word from us kids, where we share reviews that were written on Dogo books by kids for kids. It should be said that this was an extremely popular book on Dogo. I think it had the most reviews of any that I've seen so far and had a very high average of 4.5 out of five stars. All right. The sleepy writer says, have you ever been lied to? How did you feel? Angry? Scared? Stunned? Well, a 12-year-old boy fell all three. His name is Jonas. Jonas is a big deal around his community. He was chosen. Bit. That doesn't always mean good. Join Jonas and find out what his community had hidden from him. Five stars. It's a very intriguing blurb, I must say. Yes, that is gripping. He's a big deal around his community. Tell me more. (laughs) Who is he? Sarah, have you ever been lied to? Yes. How did you feel? Angry, scared, stunned. Oh, well, you sound like a 12-year-old boy I know. His name is Jonas. He's a very big deal. (laughs) Oh my god, what if Jonas grew up and became one of the Jonas Brothers? (gasps) Okay, what if the year 3000 is about (gasps) Jonas? Oh my god, oh my god also yeah Sarah Sarah I'm sorry but the FBI just sent me a message and they're on their way to kill you what because no one was supposed to know also you're right if any of the brothers are Jonas it's Kevin yeah for sure by process of elimination to be honest yeah you know I don't think Jonas wrote cake by the ocean but it sure would be cool if he did because again no concept of ocean yeah almost certainly or cake Uh, anyway, 
Tell us what Evie Jobs has to say. Uh, no relation to Steve. Yeah, we don't know. It could be. Evie Jobs 764, possibly related to Stevie Jobs. Unclear. Wrote, when I was in fifth grade, my teacher decided that we will read The Giver. We read the first four chapters and then we were done. My teacher told us to put The Giver on our desk. We did and she collected them. I asked why she took the books from us and she said the book is inappropriate. It has violence and mentions blood and innocent people like babies getting killed because they're different. It talks about bodies too. I don't think this book is good for kids. One star. <laughs> Man, I really thought this was going to be like a like a big reveal. Like I read this, now I'm in sixth grade and I read this book, but yeah. no. <laughs> no, she's just taking what she's heard you know, it's funny because, like I said, this book is very popular on this website, and most of the kids posting about it love it and are super enthusiastic. But there are a few kids like Evie. I don't think Evie did this, but who they would go in and just kind of reply to people's comments and be like, yeah, but this book is inappropriate, actually. Or like, wow. you need to make sure that you're at least 11. Interesting. But the thing is, I don't think they're trolling. I think they're trying to actually help. That's very sweet of them. That is nerd behavior. I'm going to yeah. have to call it for what it is. It is. All right. Jalen30214 says, I connected to this book when I read about a managed community. First, Jonas's sister is becoming an eight-year-old. Next, Jonas becomes a 12-year-old. Last, Jonas meets the giver towards the end. Mm, I would say it's like mid, early mid is when he meets the giver. Yeah. For sure. But who knows? Maybe Jalen was in the same class as Evie Jobs. <laughs> That's true. And they just turned it in after chapter four. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, last, as I said, Jonas meets the giver towards the end. In Inaccurate. I would give this book a four star. Because the book shows how life would be in a managed community. Jalen, this is a full paragraph that says nothing. <laughs> I love it. I love Again. how benign the phrase managed community is because that kind yeah. of, impl that's to me, I get like kind of like a gated community in suburbia mm -hmm. vibes, which like homeowners association type. Thing. Yeah. Which doesn't quite convey the horror of the dystopia. Yeah. Less killing babies, more can't paint your house green. Yeah. Is the vibe that I get, both of which are crimes. <laughs> I should be allowed to paint my house green. I love that sometimes when we read these, I feel like you can tell that when this was an assignment to read this book and post about it and the kids who definitely like read the back or read the first page or so and then did their assignment you know yeah. and that, i'm getting strong vibes from Jalen. not to like expose him if Jalen's teacher is listening just give him full credit it's fine but i don't know if he read the book <laughs> yeah or she or they i have no idea yes all right so the next two is by chloe coolness who wrote Great name. Mm -hmm. I like this book a lot, but there's one part I don't like, which is the part that Jonas's father killed the smaller twin and said, bye bye, little. It was creepy. Five stars. <laughs> Horror fan. It was creepy. And that is definitely one of the more unsettling parts. And one of the best parts, because it's one of the places where the book shows more than it tells, you mm -hmm. know? You get to, instead of the giver sitting him down and being like, well, they kill you, Jonas. <laughs> we get to the, you know, the baby's arm seize up. It goes, eh. Right. Okay. And there's something especially effective about seeing Jonas's father do it. Because up until this yes. point, Jonas's father has been so nice. And very warm. And he takes, ho he takes home Gabriel, even though he's not supposed to, to try to help him and to take care of him. And to help him thrive and so we get and he you know has told us that he gets this job he's assigned this task because ever since he was a little kid he loved working with little kids and taking care of babies and so then to see that his job as a quote-unquote nurturer is also to kill them is so disturbing and to see that this is not in any way a difficult task for him yeah this is not something that causes him any sort of unrest and that again is because like the giver said why should it this is just what we do but that's what we really get the sense that the community has lost its way yeah. when you see this loving man euthanize a child yeah anyway so yeah chloe coolness i feel you 
All right, so this review is by someone whose username is LMS, and they said, this book was sad for me, even though I really liked it. I'm not the first person who who you would see cry, which I didn't, but still it was heartbreaking. (laughs) And then they go on to say, this book shows what people would go through if they lived the perfect and most unmistakable life. There's always going to be a problem or a mistake in the building of this life. There are going to be rules and no one can break them or they dot dot dot. Well, it's a surprise. I love the realistic touch to this book. Lois Lowry really finds a hero trying to fix the conflict. I like how the ending is something I never even thought of in the beginning of the book. This builds off of friendship and courage. Being different in this book would be strange and dangerous. In these years on Earth, for me, I've learned that different is what makes me unique. Four stars. LMS, I love it. I love it! Oh, but Lois Lowry really finds a hero trying to fix a conflict. Also, oh, um, on these in these years on Earth for me, I've learned that different is what makes me unique. Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's fairly self-evident in the general definition of the word different and also unique. That's but, true. But I'm really happy for you because I think that if you are the age you are and that's what you use your years on Earth for, that slaps. I hope you're enjoying middle school. <laughs> hey, you want to read the next one? All right. Uh, I sure do. This comes from Peter Conlow. Peter Conlow says, okay, let's get this out of the way. This book may be one of the best books ever made. It has a storyline and lore that can make me cry sometimes. This is a must read for anyone. (laughs) No nonsense. No beating around the bush. Thank you, Peter. I love, okay, let's get this out of the way. I'm going to start so many sentences with that. (laughs) I love that Peter is open to crying sometimes because LMS Mm -hmm. was pretty defensive about not crying. But Peter Conlow. Which I didn't. (laughs) But Peter Conlow is like, you know what? Sometimes this makes me cry sometimes. And that's because it's a great book. Peter, I think that's great. I love a book with a storyline and lore that can make me cry sometimes. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of reviews that mentioned tears, um, including this next one, which is from Sweet Girl 823 She says, I would recommend it to people who doesn't cry easy. <laughs> this is a really sad book. And I read some of it and I cried for hours because it was sad. <laughs> Two stars. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I thought I was an emotional kid. I'm trying to picture me reading this in like fourth or fifth grade, and I'm struggling to imagine me crying. Yeah, I don't think I would have. As an adult, definitely had no desire to cry. I think because something about it, because it's an al- it's clearly an allegory, there's like a stiltedness to it that provides some emotional distance, I feel like. Yeah. Callie B. wrote, I love this book so much. It makes you realize how grateful you are for memories, colors, changes in the weather. This book helped me see how precious these and other simple elements of life are. Five out of five stars. A great read. I recommend it for you. I like that. That's a really good point, Callie. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. I agree. All right. Inventor 60 said, this is truly a beautiful tale of how the society could have been. It overall highlights the fact the society you are living in right now is a good one. Five stars. Which I think is a very simplistic take. Um, Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, I'm concerned that that's the message that some kids get from this book. Yeah, they're like, oh, thank god we're all set over here. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually... You're living large in the U.S. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a great takeaway but I do the thing is like I do see how you could how that could be your takeaway which is a little concerning to me you ready for guitar flute yeah okay so guitar flute said I read this a while ago but I think about it from time to time the way it is written and the plot line itself is simply outstanding you should read this book and also read the rest of the series and tell me what they are like smiley face five stars <laughs> i love that let's all just pass the buck on books we would like to read but will not yeah <laughs> Right. our next review comes from goku and me and 
Goku and me says, I saw the movie on October 21st on a field trap. <laughs> yes. It's important that our listeners know <laughs> that field trip is spelled the way that Terry pronounced it, which is yes, just a filled trap. trap. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, October 21st, that date is correct. That is when Goku and me saw the movie. So much wrong with this review and all of it perfect. But I think that's great. I'm glad you liked the movie. Most people didn't. Uh, I think it had Meryl Streep in it, so... Yeah, it did. That's cool. I guess Goku and me couldn't resist her wily charms uh, on that field trap. (laughs) All right, that one was short, so I call another. Asia Me said, I enjoyed this book a lot, and I hope to see The Giver too. Thank you for reading this out loud. (laughs) I had to pick that one when I was going through the reviews, because I was like... Well, we will be reading her review out loud, and frankly, I'm a little freaked out that she knows that. <laughs> oh my god. Our last review comes from Zebra Love, who wrote, Sad and happy at the end. It was made for people who don't mind dying. <laughs> but overall, it's an awesome book. If you read it, please read the others and tell me if you like them. I can't bring myself to read them. (laughs) Please! With a million exclamation points. Thanks. Three stars. (laughs) This is so much conflicting information. I really don't know what she means by it was made for people who don't mind dying. Like... (laughs) I don't know. Like, at first I thought she meant her, but, you know, three stars. I guess she wants to live. (laughs) Or he or they. I do not know incredible also another person flatly refusing to read the the rest of the series and trying to make us do the work despicable (laughs) i will not (laughs) yeah i have a lot of questions for zebra love i'm frankly this review was a roller coaster for me it starts off kind of neutral sad and happy made for people who don't mind dying uh i'm not sure who that is but surely some of us uh but overall an awesome book that's the high point in the review Please read the others and tell me if you like them because I can't bring myself to read them. Kind of drops? Please! Feels good, right? We're rising again. Thanks. Three stars. Boom. Back to the bottom. <laughs> What's going on here? This was, I feel like I'm on Jonas's sled, you know? Okay. Um... Well, shall we discuss the movie that was seen on October 21st on the infamous filled trap? <laughs> I think this is the perfect time to discuss that. So, moving into our next segment, the book was better. So, there was a 2014 film that was directed by Philip Noyce and starred Jeff Bridges, Brinton Thwaites, Odea Rush, Meryl Streep, Alexander Skarsgård, Katie Holmes, Cameron Monaghan, Emma Tremblay, and Taylor Swift. Although, the asterisk next to that would be, I think you have to be in a movie for more than 30 seconds to be, quote-unquote, starring in it. And... Taylor Swift is in the movie for literally 30 seconds. She and she plays the piano. What a waste. Um, she's... I will say, though, this is a star-studded cast. My goodness. Right? Um, and apparently the movie was not good. It has a 35% on Rotten Tomatoes. Taylor Swift, she, um, she plays Rosemary in the movie, but she doesn't really do anything. She just kind of plays the piano for like 30 seconds. And Jeff Bridges is like, this is Rosemary. <laughs> she looks terrible. They put her in this really ugly brunette wig. Devastating. They never just let her shine. No. So the giver, I mean, some people liked it, but in general, the critics found that it was boring and pretty drab. David Ehrlich wrote that the fatal irony at the heart of the giver is too hilariously blatant to ignore. Here is a dystopian teen drama about the perils of sameness that feels exactly like all the other movies in its increasingly crowded genre. And so this came out after a lot of dystopian teen movies had come out, like mm-hmm. The Hunger Games, I think Maze Runner, Divergent, and so... Yeah. The yeah. It was saturated. Apparently also, I read this review that was uh, published on Den of Geek, and it was written by Dan... Hajducky, and he said that also part of the problem with the film is that it really changes the plot a lot of the original book. Oh. So they age up Jonas to be 16 instead of 12, 
And they were always going to do that. They were always going to do that. And they, you know, it was obviously so that they could include a love interest to make Fiona a love interest. One thing that a lot of the reviews did comment on that they liked was the use of color in the movie because the movie starts off kind of drab and black and white and then color is slowly introduced, which I think is a really, that's that's an opportunity for the movie to do something that's really interesting, I think, a la Wizard of Oz. But yeah, the chief elder is turned into like a straight up villain, which is played by oh. Meryl Streep. And yeah, that's a lazy route. His parents are also more blatantly nefarious in the movie, mm. which makes it less scary. I think like this review says, he says, in trying to make Streep's chief elder tyrannical, they actually squandered her presence. A villain without a face, i.e. Orwell's big brother, is always more ominous than a corporeal menace, which I think is true. I'm just thinking of, this is Rosemary. <laughs> is it? Old man. How funny would it be if Jonas just looked at him and was like, no, dude, I think that's Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> then I would watch the movie. I wanted to talk a little bit more about kind of the lessons of the book because... As we noted, one of the children who read the book said, Inventor 60 said, This is truly a beautiful tale of how the society could have been. It overall highlights the fact that the society we are living in right now is a good one. Five stars. Which is kind of a not the best take, I feel like. But I'm not blaming Inventor 60 for that because I do think you could totally read this book and that's a reasonable interpretation to come mm-hmm. away with, especially if you're a child. So I read this academic article, which I referenced earlier, by Susan Louise Stewart that was published in The Lion and the Unicorn, and it's called A Return to Normal. Basically, what she talks about is that the giver might seem innovative, but it's nonetheless a quote-unquote return to normal because it ideologically undermines itself by returning most readers to a familiar subject position. So, for example, Jonas and the Giver, two light-skinned, pale-eyed characters, replicate contemporary cultural assumptions and that they serve as the decision makers and saviors. And she also says, in The Giver, we are encouraged to critique Jonas's culture and not our own. It is also far more difficult to identify the ideologies at work in the text because they are so close to ours, even if the world Jonas inhabits is very different. I felt like this book was like very American in mindset. Americans sort of uniquely uphold individualistic ideals Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes at the expense of collectivism. I felt like this book kind of strawmanned <laughs> mm-hmm. the idea of a collectivist society, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think one thing about this book that for me keeps me from loving it is that it's hard for me to understand what the lessons are that we're meant to take from it that we can use to critique our own culture and society because... If you come away from a dystopian book or a sci-fi book thinking, oh, great, well, you know, it's a good thing I don't live there. I'm glad I live here where things are so much better. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how useful that is because I I feel like it it should be the point of literature to, or at least one of the purposes of literature should be to encourage us to do something to make the world a better place or we should feel that motivation And um, I'm worried that, like, you come to the end of this book and you feel happy in your passivity. Yeah, that's a really good point. Also, I agree. I did think the book was very American. I was actually, I got very much Cold War vibes from it a little bit because Mm -hmm. I felt a little bit like sameness was supposed to be an allegory. And I don't think it was because Lois Lowry has never commented on this and also... I couldn't really find much else on the internet where anyone had written about this. So I don't think this is intentional, but I felt like sameness could be read as like an allegory for the Soviet Union, or at least Mm. the stereotypical, simplified version. Soviet Russia. (laughs) Yes. That, um, That Americans had of the Soviet Union, which is that it's this place that's this kind of gray, drab place without any freedom of choice or individuality. But when I found myself wondering, like, how can we apply this text to our current culture or society? I think one way that we can apply it is to think about the concept of holding memories and who are some receivers in our own culture. 
particularly I'm thinking about people who are kind of expected to or who it's their job to hold stories of trauma so that the rest of us can access them and learn from them. Like I was was thinking of when I was in high school, we had, there was a survivor of the Holocaust who came into an assembly and gave us a talk about his experience. And that was, you know, he was retired, but that was his post-retirement job. He did these talks a lot. And I can't imagine how emotionally draining that must be. And to have your life and your trauma reduced to a learning experience, which is what happens to the giver, you know, like the only time that the giver is asked by the Council of Elders to recall these memories of war or famine or anything like that is when they're trying to make a decision and they want to make an educated decision and so they don't like re you know make the same mistakes that they made in the past and so in that way he's the memories are kind of this utilitarian way to avoid mistakes or to learn something and it made me wonder about people that we another example would be like public intellectuals like writers of marginalized identities who are invited over and over again to speak about racism or write about racism or you know, other forms of bigotry and repeatedly given a platform to kind of tell the same story and are asked to relive that so that other people who don't normally have to think about that, who don't have to walk around every day holding vivid memories of the Holocaust or racism can access those memories when they choose to. That's what it got me thinking about. Wow. That's an amazing interpretation. Holy cow. Oh my God. You're right. I think that's a terrific thing to get from this. So, yeah, what what other lessons can we glean from this book? I Now that I'm thinking about what, I can't remember who it was, whoever said that it made them appreciate colors and things like that more. Just mm-hmm. the, at the surface level, you know, the basic moral that it's worth, it's worth grief and pain and loss to experience excitement and love and individuality yeah the the pain of memories is worth the experience of having them i agree on the subject of favorite excerpts this is the second book we have read where a character gets horny and i really was hoping we could see less of that in hawaii wait which one was the first Stuart little oh god you're right I can't believe I have to remind you. Um, oh, I can't remember what page it's on, but uh, Jonas has a dream about his friend Fiona. And in this society, uh, in the morning, you talk through your dreams with your family. And he has just like a nice dream that he enjoys about his female friend Fiona. And his mom is like, oh, yeah, that's the stirrings. <laughs> and he's like, the what? <laughs> And she's like, the stirrings. Everybody gets them when they're around your age, 12, which, you know, is obviously getting horny. And, oh, yeah, oh my god, I found it. It's on page 35. He has a dream. <laughs> I forgot what the dream was. So Fiona um, has started volunteering at the Center for the Elderly in the Community, where they bathe them. Uh, So Jonas has a dream that night that he was, like, in this room and there was a tub and he was, like, hot and damp. Yeah, he says, the room in the dream was warm and damp and I had taken off my tunic but hadn't put on the smock so my chest was bare. I was perspiring because it was so warm and Fiona was there, standing beside the tub. She was laughing but I wasn't. I was almost a little angry at her in the dream because she wasn't taking me seriously. I think I was trying to convince her that she should get into the tub of water. I wanted to take off her clothes and get into the tub. I wanted to bathe her. You know. Uh, he says this to his mom and dad and little sister. At the breakfast table, right? At the breakfast table. Can you imagine admitting to being horny at the breakfast table? Despicable. I'm going full Puritan. But yeah, he's asked what the strongest feeling in the dream was, and he says, the wanting. So uh, his mom tells him that The stirrings, as these feelings are called, she says, your first stirring. It'll happen to Lily someday. And she says, and very often it begins with a dream. 
So when you have the stirrings, you're supposed to report them and also remember to take your pills so that you will not experience them. Love the idea of anti-horny medication. I believe this should be passed out in all middle, high school, and college parties. <laughs> this is my strong feeling. <laughs> the medical equivalent of squirting someone with a spray bottle. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> that is one of the reasons but, why the book was banned, because it talks about the stirrings. Yeah, you know, those stirrings. Always stirring up trouble. All right. Well, we are getting towards the end, which means that it is time for us to give the book a rating. So we will be rating this book out of 10 stirrings. And I think, Terry, we are on the same page about this one. I would give this book six out of 10 stirrings. Terrific. I would also give this book six out of 10 stirrings. So thank you guys so much for listening to another episode of Reading During Recess. We wanted to say thank you so much to our listeners because thanks to you guys, we now have downloads in more than 20 countries. Woo! Whoop, whoop, including... We love you! Yeah, Japan. Thank you, Japan. You've been there since the beginning. Romania. Shout out to you Romania. I love our Romanian listeners. We love our Romanian listeners. Spain. Woo! What else? Malta. We've got some downloads in Malta. Awesome. Canada. For sure, eh? <laughs> so, yeah, please keep sharing the podcast, writing reviews. We'd love to see your reviews on Apple Podcasts, so please keep doing that. And if you want to email us, you can find us at readingduringrecesspod at gmail.com. If you want to give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram, you can find us at reading underscore recess. So thank you. And we hope to hear from you. there are books that you want to hear, please let us know. Yes, please. We're always on the hunt. And to all you preteen saviors out there, stay reading. <laughs>